Welcome to the Denver United Message Series, Awakening. At the beginning of each year, we set aside time for a season of prayer and fasting, dedicating this time to seeking Christ, practicing spiritual disciplines, and growing deeper in the Word. In a few moments, we'll share more information about how you can participate in Awakening. But for now, let's listen in to today's message. Happy New Year. Did you all have a wonderful Christmas? Did you do fun stuff? Did you get anything good for Christmas? Anyone get Omicron for Christmas? I hear it's the, the latest rage. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> oh, will it never end? <laughs> this is awakening, as Risa and Anders just told us. This is the time every year where we flow with the current of our culture and really our world. And pause, slow down, reevaluate our lives, seek first what matters most, and come back to the beginning and reorient, anchor, and aim to deepen our relationship with God. That takes some slowing down, some intentional sacrifice, and prioritizing. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. You know, God is at once the most well-known concept and the biggest moving target ever. If you ask anyone on the planet, they'll say they know something about God. There's nobody that's never heard the word. Yet God means everything and nothing, right? Very often we worship, seek, and serve not the God who is there, but a God whom we have had crafted for us in the image of our culture, in the image of maybe our father figure, in the ways that we experienced life in our formative years. I remember growing up, I think I had a concept of God. I never recognized this as such until later in life, but I had a concept of of God that was sort of given a fine point by a 1980s commercial. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, so if you're a child of the 80s or the 70s, you'll remember this and be like, totally. If you're not, you're like, oh my gosh, commercials commercials were lame back in the olden days. And I would just say off me because your kids are going to say the same about your commercials, all right? And how everything is sort of like pithy, funny. They're like, man, what was with the comedy commercial? thing. So pre-off me. This is how I uh, probably imagined God. His name was Wilford Brimley. What I do now is I take a real brisk walk each morning. Doctors yeah? are figuring out it's better for you than jogging. And I'll tell you something else they're just figuring out. Oatmeal is even better for you than you thought. High in fiber, high in protein, low in calories, and no cholesterol whatsoever. You see the sign? Word's getting out. The sign wasn't there yesterday, but it's there now, and there'll be more of them tomorrow. Quaker oatmeal. It's the right thing to do. Wilford Brimley is like the perfect God figure. Religion. It's the right thing to do. That's kind of how I never thought it was. Like some people had a God that was cracking a whip over him or wrapping him on the knuckles like the nun in their school or whatever. It was kind of like a jolly grandfatherly figure. It's like, just, it's the right thing to do. So you just do it. You do the right thing. That was God in my mind. Not wrong, but woefully inadequate, painfully incomplete, easy to focus on a God that looks like 
the sum of our experiences or our parents or our culture. I want to talk this morning about the God who is there. The God who is there. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul concludes this letter to the formative church by saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. To know God, to grow in him is to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is one and eternally coexistent in three distinct persons. The triune Godhead, as Bible scholars say, is the God we worship and serve. It is the God who is there. I remember growing up in a big church with a white steeple and a massive organ and a choir, and every week we sang, praise Father, Son, and holy, and then the organ would be like, ghost, and the whole building would shake. Uh, my parents would get so into that. My dad would sing that with such gusto. I never really thought about the fact that we would sing it, but I'm not sure we were doing it, praising Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the God who is there. So this awakening, our series is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Exodus 32 is where we're going to start. This is the place in history where Moses had led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. They were slaves, let my people go. You know, that whole thing had happened. The plagues, finally Pharaoh lets him go. They have a hard heart afterwards, so they end up chasing after him. God opens the Red Sea. The Israelites cross through. The army of Egypt follows them. The sea closes in over them and swallows them away. And then the people go on to live happily ever after. Not, unfortunately. So things are good for a few minutes, but the people start grumbling and they lose sight of God and they stop trusting him as they wander through the desert en route to the promised land, the place that God had promised that he would make for them a home and a nation with an inheritance. So Moses, as they're on their way, gets the summons from God. So he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai where God's giving him the download of the, the covenant, what it means for God to be their God and them to be his people, what this relationship was to look like. Well, the Bible says that the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain. So they gathered around Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is Moses' brother, the one who was kind of his spokesman because Moses seemed to struggle with public speaking. And so Aaron had, it seems, a little more charisma, personal dynamism. The people liked Aaron, and it seems like Aaron liked being liked by them. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Well, why would the people of Israel who just had God, Yahweh, the singular, the one and only, invite them into covenant union, say, make us some gods? Simple, because their culture's path was very clearly worn and marked out. The current was swift, and for 400 years, they were immersed in it. Egypt had gods, a god for this and a god for that. And so they're like, ah, that's what we know. So Aaron, stuck in the middle, knowing on the one hand God, who revealed himself to Moses, and very well the plight of the people wanting to please them, 
said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it in the shape of a calf. Well, first, where would people who had been slaves for 400 years get fine gold jewelry? Remember, as they were leaving Egypt, God caused the Egyptians, their captors and oppressors, to be favorable toward them such that not only were they like, fine, get out of here before our whole land blows up and disintegrates, but here, here's some of our gold earrings for your journey. And they gave them their wealth. And so the people plundered Egypt on their way out. They were getting used to having gold earrings. Kind of funny, right? A bunch of nomads and former slaves wandering through the desert without a home, but man, they had bling. And so knowing that they had bling, Aaron's like, hey, that gold you just got, bring it to me. So they did, and he made a calf. We all know that story. Listen, when the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, which? The calf and his imaginary friend? Every single translation makes this plural. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Who's these? There's a golden calf there. That's one. Simple. The people didn't stop believing in Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses, and the God who delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. They just wanted a God that they could see, taste, and touch. A God kind of reflecting their culture's understanding, their culture having been Egypt for the last four centuries. They said, these are your gods, Yahweh, this invis invisible, ambiguous deity, and this statue. Aaron saw how excited they were, so he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the calf. Is that what it says? What's he doing? He builds an altar in front of the statue and says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Why'd he do that? Is he confused? I would suggest he knows exactly what he's doing. He sees how excited the people are to have a God made in their image and in the image of their experience and culture. And he says, yeah, we'll just kind of do that and call it God. And you can look at it and go, idiots, like we do with the disciples when we read the New Testament. Easy to sort of people of Israel bash, look at them and go, idiots. Gosh, God just did all this for you. Moses only been up there a couple weeks. And already you're making a statue and calling it God and worshiping a God who is not there and fusing the two. Be careful, though, because isn't that exactly what we do? So the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and indulged in pagan revelry. Fascinating, isn't it? They didn't turn their back on Yahweh and go, ah, forget God, we're going to indulge in pagan revelry, call it what it is, and worship this statue. They tried to fuse the two. 
just like Aaron led them to. He validated it. It was like an emperor's new clothes phenomenon. They all sort of didn't want to call out the obvious error that was happening. So they had a festival to the Lord. They did the sacrifices of worship that were how people connected to him in those days. And then they engaged in debauchery. And I think the point here is that this passage holds up a mirror to us, millennia down the road. It's an uncomfortable image that it shows us. Humans have long been tempted to worship a God who is not the God who is there, a God who is not there, a God who bears some similarity to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a God whom we distort and fashion in the image of ourselves, our culture, our experiences, and our desires. This is what humans have been doing for all the centuries that God has invited us into covenant relationship with him. Idolatry is very seldom worshiping the tiki doll with the incense. It's almost invariably worshiping some permutation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And calling it good religion. We've always done it. Remade God in our own image according to our preferences. Think about it. Throughout the ages, the culture, the status of peoples and nations has influenced the way we've looked at God. For a long time, Jesus has been styled as the liberator, right? Like with a beret and a Kalashnikov rifle, in whose name and under whose banner of truth and moral mandate, we're going to storm some palace or other. In modern 20th century American culture, when we became unacquainted with hardship, opposition, and strife, and we were all living better than our parents and our grandparents before them, we sort of reinvented him in, in the image of our culture and aspirations, and it was like Jesus the entertainer, you know? Come to our rock show on Sunday. We've got more relevant teaching and awesome music and smoke and lights and a show that will entertain you. Perhaps most recently, in the image of the new day that has dawned in our culture, many in the church have restyled him as God the American Patriot. got a little quiet in here. And listen, I'm an American patriot. I'm a third generation army officer. I trained and fought and was prepared and willing to die for your freedom. Like Paul said, is anyone else a Roman citizen? So am I. I'm not questioning patriotism. It's styling Jesus as an American patriot, commingling our flag which is 275 years old, and the cross, as though they're moral equivalents, and using our faith and our Savior to justify our political agenda, it's just one more idol.
Our founders did it. No one wants to talk about them like they were the pure Christians. You know, America is a Christian nation because our founders were Christians. History shows that most of them were deists. They read the Bible and trusted it. Their understanding of God suited their purposes. You know, Thomas Jefferson um, articulately described him as a clockmaker. He winds it up and sets it in motion and says, yeah, you guys get on with it. I'll go take care of like the Andromeda galaxy or something. Very well suited to a God like that, who is not present, who doesn't have preferences, who didn't say things like submit to the governing authorities when the governing authorities were throwing you to wild beasts. But it's con- convenient when your culture impulse is casting off the bonds, the bands that attach one people to another. And look, I like the Declaration of Independence. I'm glad it was thus declared. I'm simply saying we've tried to make that religion and that God, and it's always to suit an agenda, to fulfill a purpose. My question is, how do you see God? Coming into 2022, our culture hanging on by threads, our nation all up in its feelings and at one another's throats. Who is God in your mind? In Exodus 33, as we know God would have none of it, he was about to destroy the people and start over. Moses stood in front of him like an oncoming freight train and interceded on behalf of the people, and God relented from his plans to wipe them out. And so God said, all right, I'll go with you after all. Well, Moses said in verse 12, Lord, you've been telling me, take these people to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you'll send with me. You have told me I know you by name and I look favorably upon you. Moses knows by now full well that to go into a more powerful nation without somebody stronger like God went with him before Pharaoh is suicide. So he said, God, you told me you're not going to go with us any longer because you're so fed up with these people. Who's going to go with us? You're going to send like Michael the archangel, the cherubim and seraphim? You know as well as I do that if we go into the land of Canaan without any supernatural help, we're toast. If it's true that you look favorably upon me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. So Moses is saying to God, look, I'm glad you spared us. I'm glad that at the end of the day, the deal is still on. But if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. Without your presence, we don't stand a chance, and it's not worth doing. So God responds as the story goes, and I'll leave you to read the intervening verses. For the sake of time, look down in Exodus 34. God says, all right, and reveals himself to Moses. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses. He called out his name, Yahweh, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. 
I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Friends, God revealed himself. Moses said, show me who you are. Let me experience you. And God revealed himself. And God revealed the central truth of his identity. He pulled back the curtain and invited us in and showed us that God is indeed many things. He is not simple. But foremost, he is love. That's what we talked about on Christmas Eve, and I wanted to pick up where we left off and just show you this in Scripture. He reveals himself as God, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, lavishing it that love to a thousand generations. In 1 John 4, Scripture says anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is his first signature defining characteristic. Psalm 100 says acknowledge that the Lord is God. In other words, acknowledge that there are a thousand permutations and inventions that we have called God and people before us have. But acknowledge that Yahweh, the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, He is God. And this about Him, His unfailing love continues forever and His faithfulness to each generation. This is our God. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. If you hear nothing else this month, hear that God is there to be sought. He is seeking you and he is worth seeking because what you're going to find is not a God who is angry or frustrated or fed up or too busy or preoccupied or wound things up and left you to figure it out on your own and is a little annoyed that you're so inept as to not know everything you're supposed to do. That's not God. God is love. The God who you seek, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, is a God who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I've written your name on the palms of my hands so that you know that I know that I will never forget you or forsake you. And friends, I think the truth of the matter is many of us don't seek God when we hear these sermons and come to these times like awakening in a church because we're not sure in our deep down heart of hearts, that we want to find him. We see God as angry. It's disappointed. It's distant or controlling, perhaps irrelevant, maybe performance-driven, exhausting, too hard to please. So the story in Exodus 33 tells us that Moses said, God, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know you look favorably upon me and your people if you don't go with us? For listen, your presence among us sets your people apart. 
God's presence among us, the reality of his nearness, his care about every detail of your life, his desire to lead you in good plans, to redeem you from bad choices, to heal you from brokenness, and to make you new. This is what distinguishes our God, his presence among us. That's what sets us apart. The Lord said, I will indeed do what you've asked. For I look favorably upon you and I know you by name. And Moses replied, then show me your glorious presence. And the Lord said, I'll make all my glory, my goodness pass in front of you. And then what we just read happened. But what I want you to see here is Moses asked. It's one thing to know God is good and loving to have that as a sort of theological underpinning for our faith, an intellectual truth that is correct, but we receive the fullness of God's love when we seek him with all of our hearts. He doesn't foist it on us. He makes himself known. He acts lovingly toward us, but we receive the fullness of God's love not through a theological exercise of filling in the blank correctly that God is truth? No. God is judgment? First of all, God is, oh, I got the answer, love. Okay, good. It's not about getting the right answer. We receive the fullness of God's character, his virtue, that he is love when we seek him with all our hearts. Psalm 86 says, you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Listen, to all who call upon you. You're always good and forgiving. Love is who you are, but you abound in love that is steadfast, that is experienced as close, near. Do you know what steadfast is? Doesn't waver, doesn't bail when things get hard, doesn't treat you like you are on your worst day, doesn't say, well, you screwed it up there, so too bad, so sad. I'll grace somebody else with my presence. He abounds in steadfast love to all who call upon him. He said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God didn't reveal himself in this historically unprecedented way to Moses for no reason. Moses didn't get lucky. He wasn't just at the right place at the right time or came before God when he was in a good mood. God revealed himself that way to Moses because Moses sought him. Here's what happened. I want to go back and fill in a detail in Exodus 33 in verse 7. After God sent Moses down from the mountaintop in the middle of the download of the covenant because he was so angry by the sin of his people. Can you imagine how disheartening for Moses, having spent 40 days in the glorious presence of God, one-on-one with him, God showing you in great detail how to lead others into this personal relationship, this covenant union that is to be the signature, the heritage of the people of God, 
only to have the whole thing scrapped. It's like when you're downloading software from the internet and you're like at 80% through and then the Wi-Fi goes out and you're like, no, and you lose the whole thing. God had been giving him detailed plans for something called the tabernacle or that's often translated tent of meeting, right? The capital T tent of meeting is the way that the, the NIV and the New Living would translate that. Tent of meeting with a capital T, the old fashioned um, translation said tabernacle. And indeed they ended up making it later, right? But it was cow hides and it was purple embroideries and gold pomegranates. I mean, it was lavish and specific and gets just about to the end where God is saying, hey, Moses, go do this, make this special place so your people know that they're my people and that they'll experience me when they're intentional about it. When they sinned, interrupted the download and the whole deal's off. And Moses afterward has to go down the mountain. Can you imagine going back to life and trying to find fulfillment in day-to-day stuff after having been so close to God, you could taste him. And he was telling you, this is how you can live like that. Finally, you see the world and live in living color. You smell and taste and experience its richness. And then, oh, so close, but it's gone. So in those days, Moses didn't take no for an answer. He made a practice in the days after the golden calf. The days which culminated in God showing him his glory. He made a practice to take a tent. And now this is like a little Coleman three-man tent or something. And he took it some distance from the camp and called it the tent of meeting. Think about how specific, like six chapters specific God was for the details of the tent of meeting. And then the blueprints were gone. The deal was off. Moses though, he couldn't be denied. And so he took it some distance from the camp. Why do you suppose that is? Did he just really need his privacy? I think he probably thought that God might smite him might strike him dead with a bolt of lightning or a blazing fire for having heard all the details about how this tent of meeting, capital T, was supposed to look, and then going and setting up a little Coleman pup tent. So he took it some distance away. So if in his thirst for God, he got smited, at least the people wouldn't get caught as collateral damage. And he set up his little tent and he called it the tent of meeting. And he's like, God, I know it's nothing. There's no golden pomegranates and, and cow hide, cow, sea cow hides and, and purple and scarlet thread and all this that you wanted. I know it's this pathetic tent and I know that like the stakes are bent because I tried to hammer them into a rock and it's probably lame, but I just have to see you again. I can't not know you. And so Moses went into that tent and the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance. The pillar of cloud was the symbol of God's manifest presence leading them out of Egypt and through the desert. And God had just told him, I want it just so. And Moses' tent is literally like none of it at all. And still God's presence came and filled it. It wasn't the motions. It wasn't the number of loops in the embroidery or the number of pomegranates or the spacing between the hides of sea cows. It was his heart. It was his heart seeking God. And God found it 
irresistible. And so he came anyway. And his presence would hover over the tent. And inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. So why did God show Moses his glory when he asked? The unthinkable, the unknowable, God who dwells in unapproachable light, of whom scripture says no one has seen him nor can anyone. Moses said, yeah, but could I be the exception? And God granted his request. But it wasn't because he got lucky and it wasn't because he was born at the right time or with a spiritual silver spoon in his mouth. It was because he sought with all of his heart. That's what awakening is about. 21 days to seek first the kingdom of God, to take him at his word. You will seek me. And friends, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Now, no guarantees, no promises if you seek with half your heart. Lots of us do that lots of the year. But if you'll come to me and seek me with all of your heart, God declares, you will find me. That I promise you. And so awakening, 21 days to start the year, to recalibrate our living, to zero out the instruments of our heart, to filter out that which is distracting or secondary and seek first what matters most. Awakening is a time for prayer, fasting, and consecration. You heard Risa and Anders share with you how we're going to work together to stimulate the Holy Spirit's presence and activity among us. That's not the substance or the the bulk, I hope, of your prayer life, but we want to stimulate that. We want to create a momentum There's something about the gathering of the saints that creates a manifestation, a depth, a richness, a multiplication of God's presence. And so we're going to pray and worship on Sunday nights and Tuesday and Thursday mornings, and I hope you'll join us for that. And then fasting. That, as Jesus made clear, is between you and God. We'll talk more about that next week. I'd encourage you to start thinking and praying What can I give up in order to focus my heart on seeking God? What can I strip away to make like a string around my finger, a reminder of however much I want a pizza right now? God, I want you more. And then consecration, returning with all of our hearts to developing a relationship with God, to knowing God the Father, God who is love, the God who is there. The number one way that we come to know God is in his word. Many of us have little or no familiarity, working knowledge of God's word, and thus we have little or no knowledge of God. And I say that with no judgment, without any desire to rank or diminish you, but with invitation. Would you meet God in his word this year? And so Mari and I and our family are starting the Alpha Bible in one year plan. We already partner with Alpha 
and we've got our second iteration coming up in February. And so it's very natural. The pastors that pioneered Alpha, they're veteran, older pastors, and in that stage of life where they're pastoring other pastors in the body of Christ at large, uh, their church, the church that they pioneered, Holy Trinity Brompton is in London. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful, sensible, and simple reading plan. There's one for adults. There's one for youths, a companion. Um, youths, youth is youth plural. Uh, and then there's one, if you're new to the Bible or new in faith or don't have much time, that's sort of a sampler platter. So no judgment, all love and invitation. Would you read through the word of God with us this year? Don't take my word for it. Seek him and see if you find him. It's a few minutes and a couple of chapters a day, Old Testament and New, and then wisdom, so Psalms or Proverbs. And then we can read through that together. You know what? If the Bible in a year takes you a year and a half, that's cool. He's not going anywhere. So let's not make it about performance. Let's make it about seeking with all of our hearts. We'll put a link to this on the website as well. Maybe you have a Bible in one year book or plan that you prefer. I like the idea of being generally at the same place at the same time. So if you've never read through the whole Bible, what better way to get to know God? He said, friends, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So what do you say we begin this year and seek him with all our hearts? Would you stand with me? Father, bless my friends in this good work of seeking you. Father, I pray that you would draw our hearts, that you would reveal yourself. As we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. And as Moses did, that we would settle for nothing less than the genuine article, the full Monty, the up-close and personal presence of God. And Father, I pray for my friends, for the images of false gods that we've mapped onto you, that you would cleanse our minds and our he- our, heal our hearts. Lord, that you would disentangle our experiences of religion and culture, and authority, maybe even parents and church, from the God who is actually there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we love you because you first loved us. And all who are willing, we purpose to seek you, to seek you with all of our hearts. Would you allow us to find you? Would you show up? Would you draw us close? I bless my friends with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks for coming to worship, to start your year in the presence of God. Thanks for continuing to do the, the, the good work of complying with the regulations and trying to keep one another safe and healthy. I know as this wears on, none of us loves the whole mask thing. We don't talk about it a ton. Thank you for prioritizing one another and Jesus for coming together. Those of you who are worshiping with us at home, thanks for worshiping with us at home. If you're homesick or quarantining, may God keep you in his care and uh, heal you quick. Have an amazing week and we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information on how you can participate in Awakening, go to our website, denverunited.com, where you can learn more about prayer and fasting, 
you can get details of our upcoming worship nights and dive deeper into this wonderful time growing closer to Christ and his church.